0: Welcome back to the future of figure skating. My name is Anna Keller and my guest today is three-time Olympian paraskater skater Kirsten Mortau. As part of the Canadian team at the 2014 Winter Olympics, Kirsten won a silver medal in the team event with her then partner Dylan Moscovich. With partner Michael Marinaro, Kirsten is a three-time Canadian champion and has won numerous international medals. In addition to her achievements on the ice, Kristen has been an outspoken advocate for athlete mental health and eating disorder awareness, including participating in a documentary called Disorder, where she spoke openly about her own struggles with body image. Kirsten and Mike retired from competitive skating at the end of the last season and have since toured with Stars on Ice and begun coaching. My Paris partner, Erica, and I were lucky enough to work with them this past August during a Paris camp at the St. Margaret Skating Club in Halifax, Nova Scotia. I can confirm that they are encouraging and thoughtful coaches who motivate their students to take on new challenges. I'm so excited for the conversation with Kirsten. I really enjoyed getting to work with you over the summers. And we were so busy on the ice, though, that we didn't really get to talk at all. So I'm glad to have the opportunity for you to come on the podcast now. Yeah, me too. Thanks for having me. First off, what has been new with you? You're now in Vancouver, I think. So you've been having a, some big... Life changes over the last few months?
1: Yeah, pretty much everything is new with me. The only thing that isn't new, I guess, are uh, my people, my close circle of people. But yeah, as you mentioned, I've moved to Vancouver. I drove my car across the country from Ontario uh, to British Columbia, which for those who are not aware, it's about a 48 hour drive, give or take a couple hours. So we did that in four days and spent Uh, the fifth day hanging out in Banff, because we had never been there, my mom and I. And it was actually really great. It was somewhat therapeutic to pack my car up and drive across the country to start sort of a a new chapter of my life. And uh, it's been a little less than a month now, probably three weeks that I'm here uh, in our new place. And I love it. I've always loved Vancouver. It's always been the plan to move here. So it was a little bit surreal that finally it's here and uh, I've been doing some teaching with Mike. Mike is in the province for the month. We had booked um, seminars weekly, a couple seminars every week, and so his plan was always to be here, and then we got an exciting call that we were invited to do a Stars on Ice autumn, which is in Japan, in October, which I just couldn't be more thrilled at the prospect. I was not sure I'd ever be able to go back to Japan, so um, to be invited to do a show there when we had such a fantastic experience with Stars on Ice in Canada. I just am so thrilled. So we've been doing an hour of training, four days a week, uh, getting our show legs back under us, kind of figuring out what's what.
0: And yeah, it's been fantastic. That's great. Is this the first time that you've done a show in Japan?
1: Yes. Yeah, it's the first time we've only ever Uh, competed there and then of course done the galas after competition but we've never been invited explicitly for a show so this is very cool.
0: That's so exciting yeah I loved seeing you in the Stars on Ice in Canada I thought that your your show programs just were really really wonderful and it was so nice to have pairs in Stars on Ice I feel like sometimes the pairs gets the short end of that. Yeah thanks it was we were thrilled
1: we had the best experience we didn't have a ton of uh, experience with touring. In fact, Mike had none. I had done a short tour with my former partner, Dylan Moscovich, way back in 2010. And so I had uh, just a little taste, I think, of what it might be like. But uh, from then then on, it was uh, Duhamel and Radford that were doing the tour, and they often didn't have space for more than one. So Dylan and I never did one. Uh, And that was Mike and my first, as I mentioned. And we were just so hoping that we did a good enough job to be called back. It was the time of our lives and surrounded by the coolest people. We learned so much and it was fantastic.
0: That's great. Well, I'm excited for you to do it in Japan. And hopefully, yeah, that's the start of more opportunities. Well, we also are doing the holiday stars
1: in Canada as well. So that uh, we at least have these two. And then, yeah, fingers crossed that it, it keeps the ball rolling.
0: Yeah that's great. You know, after your competitive career where in order to succeed and keep focused in that you really have to have very concrete, specific goals that you're putting like all of your energy toward now that you're retired from that, are you finding that you are replacing that with some other like very specific goal that you're putting your energy toward or taking the time to sort of figure out what's next? Yeah, I'm taking time. I
1: was pretty aware of uh, transition and how difficult it may be. I am 30, uh, retired when I was 29, almost 30 and so because of that I have many friends who have already been through uh, this whole thing and I've had friends who have transitioned and retired very well and friends who had a really hard time and I was scared. Skating has been my my biggest passion and really my first love and I do still love it so much and because of that I was terrified to take that next step. And because of that, I did some networking before I retired and then set myself up with some jobs and some opportunities in my new location so that I was never panicked um, for work or for purpose, more importantly. Uh, But besides that, I really have been taking the time to figure out who I am apart from um, a competitive pairs figure skater that's been so much of my identity for so long that it's taken a good amount of um, looking inwards to figure out who I might be uh, with that being a lesser part of my life. So I've been saying yes to pretty much everything, which is sometimes to my detriment. I've been so crazy busy, which is exciting, but also doesn't provide me with a great sense of balance either. (laughs) Um, I haven't done a whole lot of exploring my new city and uh, trying new things because I have been um, at the ring so much, but I love it. And I know that I will find that balance at some point. Um, and we're just, I'm just starting to kind of set goals. We, uh, my partner Liam and I are going to uh, sign up for a marathon, myself a half, and Liam will do a full. He has already started his training. And so trying to figure out um, how to be motivated through other ways, which is kind of a fun journey to be on.
0: Yeah, that sounds really exciting. I think there there's a seems like there's a little bit of a tradition of skaters going and doing marathons afterwards. I think At least so. I think about now Asada did one. And you know, there have been some people who have, you know, found that as a, a way to just set a, a goal for your own sort of physical activity as well as what else you're doing. Yeah. Well,
1: it's interesting too, because it's so important for me personally to figure out my relationship with fitness when it's not my job. I've had a bit of a skewed, an extremely skewed relationship with my body and with food and with working out. And um, it's still really important to me to move my body and continue to be active, but um, I need to find a way to go about that. That's not forcing myself to do it or having to do uh, a particular run today for a particular reason that my trainer told me. And so um, I like the idea of having a, a set goal, a set time to complete this half marathon. And I think for those athletes who enjoy training, which I certainly was one of them, this is probably a good, a good way to transition into training for something different without your whole life being kind of uprooted and flipped over on its head. That makes sense.
0: To yeah. And for you to be self-motivated in training, um, well, in training with Liam, you can encourage each other, but um, have mm. not Um, you know, you're not doing it because there's any external pressure on you to do it. It's just your full. That's right. Self-gratification, I guess, which is new for me. (laughs) So you just launched the KMT performance Touring Program. Could you tell me a little bit about what you're hoping to do with that project?
1: Yeah, it's uh, a bit of a passion project for me. I started working on it gosh, probably in June, but was, it was an idea uh, much before that. And the reason being, a couple of reasons, one of which uh, I was trying my best to be a leader as I was competing at a very informal level, trying to encourage my peers um, unsolicited, really, so whether they wanted it or not, but um, trying to lead by example and also to use my experience to help other people. I've had such a plethora of um, really great high experiences and also really devastating lows, things that feel devastating at the time. And I thought it was such a, I had such an incredible platform to do that on a wider scale uh, if I worked hard enough and uh, created the right vehicle to do it. Uh, But more importantly, when I was younger, when I started skating with Dylan, I was 16 and Dylan was 24 And I was at a training school where I was the oldest girl and also the most experienced. But as the oldest and most experienced, I had only skated pairs for 10 months. And you don't learn a lot in 10 months, try your best. But I didn't have a ton of knowledge and I didn't have anyone really to turn to. And because of that, I made some really poor choices and choices that will affect my whole life for the majority of it, things that I'm still working on and working through and because of that, I thought, gosh, wouldn't it be cool if I could be somebody that I may have needed when I was 15, 16, 18, you know, all of these sort of impressionable ages where um, you're trying so much as an athlete to do your best uh, at all costs. So many athletes are very much type A, do whatever it takes to get the job done. And this can be really harmful and dangerous. And uh, because of that, it's a it's a huge goal of mine to help athletes to be well-rounded humans who are extremely successful and can uh, get the job done, but not at the cost of of their mental health and of their bodies. And I guess that's the whole reason behind it.
0: So you're offering sort of direct mentorship as well as more traditional sort of support around training or um, some coaching elements as well. Yeah,
1: I'm selling packages essentially and the athlete can curate the package you got it and we can have one-on-one discussions where we talk about things that might be a struggle for the athlete at the current time we also um, offer goal setting and mindset training and all of these things that I have learned through so many amazing professionals for so many years and there also are physical classes such as stretch and recovery um skater specific stretch and strengthening jump classes movement classes all this good stuff everything of course in partnership with the athletes coach that is of course uh, necessary and very important to me that we work as a team trying to help uh, each person to be their best self but uh, yeah just launched yesterday and the reception has been great so far so I'm hoping that it's a, a resounding success I know I have a ton to learn but hopefully this is the just the start
0: Yeah, that's really an exciting way for you to take all of the different things that you've learned and developed for yourself and to, um, yeah, and to get to work with the next generation. Do you ever imagine yourself wanting to be a coach, you know, a primary coach for skaters in the future or that you might want to do more of this approach where you're working as a part of a a team, but not necessarily as the like head technical coach or... Do you have a consultant kind of, yeah, consult- role. <laughs> role? I mean, consulting is great. So
1: <laughs> consulting is great. That's what I'm doing now and doing it all over. It's it's amazing to work with so many coaches. I don't know uh, to answer your question. Um I've been working in the same place uh three to four days a week since I arrived here and really getting to know the kids. And uh it's a, a small pair program in BC that um, Jacob Kreiderman and Eileen Murphy have kind of ran and they've done a fantastic job for the last three years. And Mike and I have been going in to help them for the past couple of weeks. And it's the the closest I've ever got to a student uh, as a full-time coach. And I'm really enjoying it. There's something different about when you actually know the athletes and uh, can get to understand them a little better and how they work and how you can help them. And uh, in only three weeks, that's been really rewarding Uh, I also have been taking as many opportunities as possible to shadow other coaches I know that I can learn so much from so many different people and if this is what I want to do full-time I want to be the best at it or I want to be my best at it of course so I've been trying to take little things from every coach that I'm shadowing trying to understand not only how to how they manage a technical aspect of a lesson, but also how you manage a lesson just in general with different kinds of kids and different kinds of athletes. So I'm leaving the door open to answer your question to that. Right now it is purely consultant based, but um, this little pair program in in Vancouver has been um, special. It's been really exciting. Both Mike and I finish each day. We work late there. Usually we're finishing at 9 p.m. and we go walk to our cars outside and think, gosh, that was so fun. So fun to see them uh, trying hard and to work closely with other coaches. So we'll see doors open on that one.
0: That's great. And there's certainly no rush for you to have to make any of those kinds of plans that you're, as you're learning and finding out, you know, what most um, appeals to you and where you're the most driven. I am certainly um, very confident that whatever kind of forms of coaching that you do that you'll be a success at it. I know that I learned so much work working with you. And that I know Erica and I were talking afterwards, how impressive it was that you could not only be working with the elite skaters, but that you could be teaching us how to do like a, a throw single Sao Kao, because that's Sometimes it's, I think that teaching the, you know, the beginners might maybe more complicated when we're a little clueless um, than it is adjusting the technique for a, you know, a more elite skater. So I was certainly impressed.
1: I actually really enjoy teaching all levels and all ages, both Mike and I do, but we learned a lot teaching you and Erica, and it forced us to look at things a little bit differently because we hadn't taught a throw single in quite some time. Of course, there were other pair teams at that school in Halifax who were also doing throw singles, but it forced us to really look at why a throw triple works and how you break it down. And that has been a fantastic learning opportunity for me, even as I come here to help this pair program in Vancouver, they are very young too. And so there are many throw singles involved, but the amazing thing about teaching adults is that I always find is adults just have such an eagerness to learn. They're there because they want to be there. There's no one pushing an adult to go to the rink and skate. And because of that, I find they're just sponges of information that want to try and want to push themselves out of their comfort zone. Whereas sometimes uh, a teenager might feel silly or be a little bit embarrassed. And uh, we have taught quite a few uh, adult sessions as a part of seminars that we're teaching and it's always uh, my favorite or one of my very favorites and if Mike and I are split I'm usually fighting to get that adult session uh, to be my session
0: to teach because
1: it um, it's a blast it was really fun for us.
0: Yeah it definitely takes adults longer to learn things but the motivation is definitely there.
1: Yeah, and the, the willingness to correct too, whereas sometimes it can be harder with attention spans with younger kids or even intention to correct can sometimes be a little bit difficult where uh, adults, of course, are always, they know exactly what needs to happen. Sometimes it doesn't always pan out, which is normal for any athlete.
0: That, um intention is certainly there. Yeah. Our coach is like, oh, you actually practice between lessons. My, you know, my teenagers don't do that. And I was like, oh, yes, <laughs> yeah. of course we practice.
1: <laughs> what do you think we're here for?
0: One of the things that I saw on how you were framing your consulting work was the phrase progress over perfection. And that really resonated with me that there's such a drive for perfectionism and the type of people who are who come into to skating. But there can be so many negative sides to that if it um, means that you don't get to appreciate your own successes along the way. Hoping you speak a little bit more about what that means to you and um, how you're approaching the idea of perfectionism these days.
1: Yeah. The first time I ever heard uh, the phrase progress over perfection was by Caitlin Osmond in an interview, I think Olympic season in 2018. And uh, I'm sure she didn't coin the phrase. It was the first time ever I heard it kind of in a skating context. And it became so important to Mike and I because I am such a perfectionist by nature. And it usually is a negative thing for me. It, It hasn't it hasn't had a lot of benefits for me in my training because it more often will lead to frustration at not being able to be perfect, especially not being able to be um, perfect the first or second try. And so for Mike and I, the idea of progress instead of perfection or over-perfection became so important to maintain that healthy kind of working relationship and um, that efficient training session where we didn't let any sort of emotions get in the way of that progress, it became really important for us with our twist, which was an element for us that we worked and reworked and reworked every season. And because of all of the muscle memory that we had created over the years of completing the element and because of how difficult it is to change it, small progress became so important to us. We can build on these small progressions every day. And then all of a sudden in a month, something that you've had 30 small progressions on looks entirely different and we often can't see this little changes from the day-to-day or on a day-to-day basis but we finish with an entirely different product ideally and so it became uh, just a normal part of our routine where the small progress would be discussed we would talk about how in the twist today all I worked on was keeping my head straight not turning my head too early and that's a very small insignificant thing for a 27 28 29 year old to work on but this small insignificant thing becomes significant when when coupled with so many other things and so I've liked that phrase so much since I heard it from Caitlin four years ago and since it's been such a big part of my career I wanted it to be a big part of my business as well and I just believe it's so important for all athletes to understand that we can create these small habits that lead into big, impressive things and achieving our big goals.
0: Yeah. And it seems like since it can be so damaging for athletes to feel like if you're not already at, you know, it's like, if you're not already at the top or you're not progressing at the same speed as somebody else, what's the point talking about, you know, how many skaters quit the sport at various points, I think often as teenagers or, you know, at at a certain point when it becomes clear, oh, well, maybe you're not going to get to be at the Olympic level. And I think having ways for us to frame success in the sport, that is not only the idea, you know, if the only person who's successful is the Olympic champion, then we're in trouble. So there have to be other ways to frame progress (laughs) and success there goes my career. <laughs> and I think I realized that the most I got to interview uh, Ashley Wagner about some of what she's been doing um, since retirement. And it just made me realize that, oh, she was having some of the same experiences of being told you're too old, you're not good enough. What are you still doing here? That resonated with the experiences that that I had, that I, my peers had. Yeah. And it's like, oh, even if you're at that level, you can still feel like you're not good enough and your skating isn't good enough. And so like, how do we reframe the concept of like, what is, you know, what is good skating? Like we should have high standards, but not so that everything that isn't perfect becomes worthless.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And also there, there's not only one way or one model to do everything. I listened to your podcast with May and she was talking a little bit about how, you know, her coaching team helped her to find, her power and her strength in in her body and in how she was different and how you discussed that you were always told, um, you know, too tall, too this, too that. And I think that's probably similar to what you just said Ashley's experience was. And I think that's the only thing we all have in common or one of the few things we all have in common is in figure skating. It's such an individual sport, but we all have these experiences of too this or too that, not enough this and not enough that. And I think we we need to work towards shifting that sort of mindset into like okay you're tall why is that good you know and this is happening I believe slowly and little by little we still have a lot of work to do but there are a ton of people who are out there trying to break the mold um, you know I think of Ashley Kane who I'm sure has been told that she's too tall hair girl. Gosh, I'm sure she can't even count how many times, or that uh, she should be a single skater and not a pair skater because of that. I'm speculating. I'm purely speculating, but I do believe I've seen her say that in interviews before. And and she broke the mold. She's a national champion and an Olympian, and and I think that's pretty successful. But also, I don't believe we need to only celebrate uh, successes that end up at the highest level. Sometimes success is. Making it to a sectional championships or making it out of a sectional championships, maybe that's success, and I want to make it clear that my website, this platform, is not for people who want to be olympians. It can be it very much can be. I would be happy for that, but also it's for people who just have big dreams and want to achieve them, and the the big dreams will vary from person to person because that's what life is that's what makes life interesting. We don't all want to strive for the same things and uh, I think we can all strive to be our best, regardless of what that outcome will be. For example, I I told you I'm going to try to run a half marathon. I'm a terrible runner, like a really bad runner. I spoke to Mike yesterday about this goal, and he said, "Do you have a goal time?" I was like, "No." <laughs> I you know, ideally, I don't want to be last to crash the finish line. But if I am, you know, I finished and I trained for it, and um, I don't think that makes me less successful. It's just my goal for this half marathon is very different than, than a lot of other people's. And I think that's okay.
0: Yeah. I think that's a very healthy attitude to have towards it. Yeah. So you've been very vocal about the need to improve awareness and education around mental health and body image. And I think you have a role with safe sport with Canada, um, working on some of those issues. Um, so what are some of the changes that you'd like to see in how, uh, mental health and body image is addressed within the skating community?
1: I'll preface this by saying I did have a role. I do not, uh, anymore. It was, um, and it was difficult during COVID. I was the athlete rep during the Olympic season. And, uh, as we know, COVID Mm -hmm. ran rampant and any sort of plans that we did have kind of got squashed. So, I unfortunately was not able to really make a difference at all in that role, but I'm hoping to still do it in other ways. And we have so, so much work to do in this area and Skate Canada is trying hard. We have the body image guidelines now, which I think is fantastic. Something that I would like to see happen though, is that we understand the problem a little bit more. I think oftentimes we try, and this is not to single out Skate Canada, I really appreciate the efforts that they're making. I think, just in general, we try to solve a problem that we don't quite understand yet. And we need to understand this problem before we go about forming a solution. And for me, my big dream is to have some sort of a panel where you can pull uh, different sort of members of sport uh, as it pertains to obviously the skating. Uh, Skate Canada or any any sort of skating federation, and have them on a panel and have a room full of people and ask questions. Just try to learn and ask questions because I think so many problems start with good intentions, and I know certainly mine did. Um, it's incredibly difficult to be a high level coach managing a high level team, and I think sometimes in the desire to help your athletes be the very best, you can say or do things that might not even uh, occur to you are a problem. And I think because of this, so many athletes, the course of so many athletes' lives change. And of course, this is not, this problem is not only Mm -hmm. consistent with having a superior tell you something and then all of a sudden your, your life course changes, but it is very common. And I think it would be a large percentage of athletes who would tell you that something suggested to them or something said to them did kind of change the course of that path that they had. And so for me, I just think it would be so amazing if we could have a number of different people, I'll tell you anything, you anything you want to know, I'm happy to tell you anything, you know, and, and learn sort of what made difference and and what was harmful and what was helpful and obviously this is different for everybody something that might be harmful for me might be totally okay for Mm -hmm. you but the more we can learn what could potentially pose a problem the more we can avoid these things and try to help our athletes become or stay healthy well-rounded Successful people.
0: Yeah, it seems like it's a big problem in sports as a whole. And then we're also all living in a society that puts too much emphasis on weight and appearance for uh, people's values. And so it's, you know, we're in that broader context. Sure. It does seem like with skating, and maybe this was part of your experience, that there is the particular challenges for girls going through puberty and making that transition. And then also, I think maybe a particular challenge that comes with pairs or ice dance where there's sort of that seen as that responsibility of the girl in particular to be as light as possible and what would a healthier approach to talking about puberty in particular and the fact that rather than trying to avoid it or delay it it, what it would look like to have coaches and trainers actually talk openly to athletes about maybe you'll have a hard season we're going to need to adjust some things at some point or to prepare for that earlier on
1: yeah absolutely and I mean we know the effects of delaying or um, stopping puberty altogether, of course, this is not healthy. And the longevity is just not there when these are uh, the kind of ideas that are focused on, which we've seen uh, in figure skating run rampant. But it is so important, I think, for the athlete and the coach to both be aware of what is happening and that not only um, they're aware, but that we put the focus on the body as your power and your tool. This is what helps you to complete your figure skating elements and that's not to say we don't want to be our our fittest strongest selves but strongest is such the key word there and we can do this by focusing more on the off-ice exercises that we're doing how our off-ice conditioning program is set up and this doesn't have to be uh, this should not be a punishment for puberty or for something that's happening to you, uh, in your to your body, in your regular life, something that we all, all females go through, and so I think the more we can shift that sort of mentality around uh, what the body, the functionality of the body, and what it can do for us, as opposed to what it does or doesn't look like, the more we can not only make athletes. Uh, stronger and more capable of doing their difficult figure skating elements, but also the more pride they can have in their body and working towards making it its fittest self. If this is something that you get to do as an athlete, as opposed to something that's a punishment for something taking place that you have no control over, I think it helps the mindset and the understanding of uh, what our bodies do for us, which is huge. But it's hard. I don't want to, I don't want to make it seem like this is such an easy thing. And it's something that I've not quite even figured out yet. You know, we're all trying to figure out what's the best way to help teenagers, preteens to to go through this in a, in a way that's healthy for them. And it's really, really hard to be a coach. I would never, I would never suggest anything otherwise. It just is such a huge Um, responsibility also to be a coach and to understand the magnitude of your words and how they affect your athletes, if if positively or negatively, because that stays with you and it stays with them.
0: Definitely. It's a period of life in general, I think, for everyone where it's tough to have, you know, strong self-esteem. You're sort of figuring out your sense of self, you know, especially for, for teenagers, that that is a period that can be damage can be done there that is hard to, can be harder to recover from.
1: Absolutely. It's an incredibly difficult time for
0: athletes, not athletes, and also an
1: incredibly impressionable time for people of that age.
0: I wanted to ask you a little bit more about pairs in particular, um, not just around this, but with so many retirements coming after this last Olympic season and splits and looking at the pairs field in general, it's a much more open field, many, many young teams right now. And, you know, a lot of the fans were looking at that and kind of going, what's wrong with pairs? Is pairs, you know, as a discipline dying? Are we, you know, afraid that there isn't, that there's something that's happening here that isn't attracting enough gators into the support or enough support from the federations or any of that? And so, you know, you're working with a bunch of young teams and programs that are trying to develop new pair programs in parts of Canada. And so I'm curious what your thoughts are sort of about pairs, you know, the pairs discipline as a whole and its place within figure skating and what some of the things that are good about pairs and are great about pairs and what are some of the things that maybe make it particularly challenging?
1: Yeah, it's it's a tough one and gosh I hope the discipline's not dying. I love it so much and and I have had such amazing experiences in pair skating. For me, it's just such a more fun way to experience figure skating when you can kind of walk through these trials and tribulations with a partner, when you can experience your highest highs with somebody and your lowest lows with somebody. It it not only brings you so much closer but it's so helpful to have another person to lean on, to go through these things. And I just can't imagine doing it any other way at this point, but there are a lot of problems and difficulties in pair skating. One being it's really hard and it can be very scary to start a pair team. For somebody who has never done it before, it can be terrifying to start a discipline that is so crazy dangerous and to have all the onus and responsibility on you to keep these two athletes safe. And we know that there are very few pair skating coaches. I'll speak to Canada because it's where uh, my knowledge is and my experience, but there are very few pair skating coaches in Canada. And if you're from a smaller town or a more remote place, there's not necessarily an opportunity for you to skate pairs. And a lot of the time you'll hear people saying there's no boys, we don't have boys, but There there are boys. I think they're more often, I I should say not everywhere, maybe in some of the more remote places. Certainly uh, there are far more females who are in figure skating, but I think a lot of the time it comes down to the fear of starting something that you don't have a hundred percent knowledge on, which is why I really do have one of the reasons why I have so much respect for uh, Jacob and Eileen in, in Vancouver and for Charlene Cameron in Halifax, who has a pair program where uh, you and Erica came to visit us. And so it can be really, really difficult, which is, I think, one of the reasons. And also, I was really lucky at the end of my career. I had amazing coaches. And when I look at the way Bruno Marcotte runs a school and the way Allison Perkis runs her school, I can't imagine why people don't want to come here and skate. It's healthy, it's amazing. We, you know, you accomplish goals in a way that. I just can't imagine it being any better. But not everybody has that experience. And we see a lot of the time, there have been a lot of stories coming out of of abuse of of pair skaters and pair girls in particular. I think there often is just this crazy pressure for the partners or the pair girls specifically to be perfect. And if she's not, she gets thrown away for, for somebody new. We've seen that quite a few times in the past couple of years, unfortunately. And we've we've read stories of abuse, um, mental abuse in pair girls and pair skating quite a few times in the past couple of years. And, and when people see that, they don't want to start skating pairs. Why would you start skating pairs when this is what you see? Why would your parent, as a parent, why would they put you in pair skating? Not only to, uh, not just that also, but also the, the pressure on body image and staying so teeny and the stories that we hear out of other countries. There are a lot of things that Can be a deterrent to trying pair skating, and it just is so unfortunate because my experience in the last seven years of my career is so different than that. It can be so different, but it's it's really it's hard to find the right recipe, to find the right partner, to find the right coach, uh, to not only be successful—that's besides the point—but to be happy and enjoying your skating career, and that's everybody's. I think number one, before you get into skating, you're not really thinking about the Olympics. I think when you just start, you're more, off, more often than not thinking about just starting figure skating. And so there are a number of, of reasons, I think, why pairs is suffering right now, but I'm hoping to see, I'm hoping to see a turnaround in a couple of years.
0: One of the things that I noticed, particularly looking at some of the junior Grand Prix and thinking about what developing teams look like, that there's often such a large age gap in pairs. I think we see this in dance some too, but in particular, there's maybe that sense of the boy needs to have a certain ability to develop muscles or be tall enough, and it helps the girl to be tiny, then that's going to lead to these larger age gaps, which then can doesn't have to, but could certainly lead to a power differential that's already, like you were saying, if there's already this sense that the girls are more replaceable than the boys are. And so, you know, thinking about some of these things, I also wonder how much of that goes into educating not only the coaches, but also sort of the expectations that are set for guys in the sport as well. And for anyone who's in that sort of role as the, the lifting partner, which we still haven't come up with a good team for. Yeah. And
1: another thing you mentioned age gap. Another thing about that is it may work for a time, but the longevity is just not there. Even for my former partner, Dylan and I, we had an eight year age gap when we started. I think I mentioned I was 16 and he was 24 and it worked for a time until it became evident that I wanted to skate for two more cycles and he was already 29. And of course that doesn't, um, it doesn't mean he couldn't have done it. It just the longevity of us as a pair together was not super realistic. And so that led, uh, of course, coupled with other things, but that led to our uh, eventual split. But that can happen so frequently when, you know, if you start with a, a bigger boy who's a teenager and has developed all of these things that he needs to be safe as a, as a lifting partner, skating with a, a prepubescent, Uh, little girl, well, the girl grows and we don't know what that looks like just yet. You know, you can take some guesses dependent on genetics, but you have no Mm -hmm. idea what that's going to look like and people's technical abilities change. And not only that, but so much of being a pair skater depends on the relationship outside of the technical ability. We need to be able to get along with our partner and have a good working relationship. And a lot of times that is what would end a partnership as well, which of course, this big age difference being at totally different places in, in each other's lives can can lend itself to that, I think. But when the boys feel like they are not replaceable, but there are so many girls, which happens in, the, in higher levels for sure. It happens at every level for sure. It can lead to some certain behaviors. And we've seen that too in the past couple of years. And I think education, just as much as we talk about education with body image and um, mental health and eating disorder, we also need to have education on how to treat your partner right. And I have been so, so lucky. I mean, Michael Marinero could teach this course on Moscovich also was amazing as partners, but not everybody is this lucky and this power struggle, not only is it not helpful, it's also harmful and it's not conducive to a good career. If your girl does not feel confident and safe in a partnership, she's not going to compete or to practice as her best. It just makes it common sense. And I think this is a lesson that a lot of people need. And I think probably a lot of coaches need as well.
0: Even seeing the ways in which the story that's told of, you know, who would be a good pair and the kinds of people that you would want to match together in order to be able, not so much even to do the technical things, but to present the image of what is supposed to look like a, a good pair team with the size of the partners. But also there's often this sort of expectation of being able to present a very traditional looking hetero-romantic storyline. And that if you go outside of those boxes also, then you might not be put into pairs in the first place. You may have a harder time finding a partner or any of those things. And it seems like, you know, again, that by reducing and reducing and reducing who would be seen as a good partner, then in the sport, we're also feeding into that sense of scarcity.
1: Yeah, I have... Yeah. I have so many, so many thoughts on this. You're talking and I'm thinking, yeah, this and this and this and this. So I'm going to try to remember them all. The first and foremost is our language, the way we talk about who would be a good pair girl. This used to drive me nuts as a kid. I did not want to skate pairs at all. I had a late start and I was very, very short and had... um, and I'm still very short, but obviously was shorter then. And so many people were telling my coach and telling my mom she would be a great pair skater, she's so tiny she would be a great pair skater. she's so tiny, and I never wanted to do it. and it wasn't until I was fifteen and had you know some some life things and for whatever reason decided to give it a try and and I loved it, and I didn't love it because I was tiny and I didn't do it because I was tiny. I did it because I liked flying and all of these amazing things that pair skating gives you. But I think as I got older and I reflected on this, I sort of realized I was so subject to hearing people my whole life say why I would be good at this. And look, there's nothing wrong with that. It didn't damage me by any sense at all. But I wanted to skate pairs, not because I was small, because I was strong and capable and because I could connect with a partner more than I could connect to an audience by myself. And all of these things that made me a good pair skater are things that I developed myself, not something that I was born with. And for so long, this was the mold. A very short girl was the mold. All the podiums looked like that. And I think as much as we say visibility is important, in so many frames and walks of life. Visibility is also important in pair skating. The number of times I have referenced Ashley Kane to a student or to somebody who wants to skate pairs, who's a little bit taller, innumerable. So many times, look, she did it. You can do it, of course, with the right coaching and the right partner. All of these things are important, but the more that we make it Look like pairs is only for one type of person. The fewer and fewer people we will see in pair skating, and that just is the unfortunate truth. And of course, we always want to be uh, safe for both partners. Uh, We always want to make sure we have a good, a well-matched team. These things are extremely critical for safety. But that doesn't mean that uh, there can't be a a taller boy for a taller girl. It's it's possible and uh, should be an option.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, and even seeing, I think the success of Sui and Han, you can look at, you know, they're not a huge um, height difference. Um, The team that I just saw at U.S. Classic, the young U.S. team, where I think Max Fernandez is only like 5'7", but is incredibly strong and is able to do it. And I think that, like you said, there are certainly some abilities and training and things that are required for the safety, but that sometimes it's like we use gender as a shortcut. What we actually mean is we're talking about certain physical abilities. I was watching some young uh, kids in my rink where it's a, you know, a brother and sister and the girl is really tall. And I'm sure their parents would have put them together as a team if their height difference was the other way around. But why not have, you know, a team that would be the girl lifting the guy. Yeah.
1: And we've seen it in small doses. I think to answer your question, I think it's just easier, you know, like you take something that you know has worked in the past and it's just easier to put it together and try to make it work. You have an exact mold to follow. This is exactly how this worked before. This is how it can work now. And so this is when we need these kind of like groundbreakers to help us to to break this mold and, and to try something new. And I heard Caitlin Weaver and your conversation and she was talking about how she kind of enjoyed, you know, all of the things, these kind of like femme things that come with being an ice dancer. And and I'm the same way, you know, I have I have always enjoyed this, wake up, put on makeup and do hair pretty. It's one of my favorite parts, if not my favorite part of competing. You know, I've always really enjoyed it, but this is the mold that we know. And then we have people like Gabby Papadakis who just came out with a documentary, her and Guillaume, the Olympic season. And it's all in French. I haven't watched it. I'm sure I could uh, watch and pause a lot and try to understand. My French is rusty at best, but uh, we saw some translated clips on Twitter. And a lot of times she's talking about how, you know, the girls are waking up three hours earlier than the boys to put on makeup. She's not doing it. Why do I have to do that? You don't have to do that. And it's this, this mold that has worked in the past and um it's really hard and it's scary to break the mold. And I appreciate Gabby for all she's done to try to not only break the mold but have us look at it a little bit differently.
0: Yeah, definitely. And it's as I said to Caitlin, but I just think it's so true that you, it's not that there's anything wrong with having lots of makeup or anything wrong with mm. being a very, you know, feminine presenting woman or any of those things. It's just when it's the only option or when it's a box that you have to do, then it's not great. And just not a good way to grow the sport either. Certainly. Thinking about pairs, but in general about what does it look like to have you know healthy skating is injuries and injury prevention. I know you dealt with concussions at various points in your career. What do you think should be done to, you know, if anything can be done to try to make the sport a little bit safer. I think it's also very challenging with some of the questions around injuries and in competition and, you know, at what point do you try to stop a competition or what point do you decide to not compete because it's not going to be safe for you? And it seems like a really challenging thing to try to put rules and practices around, but I'm curious what you think about all of those topics.
1: Yeah, it's, this is a hard one, especially because a lot of the time, I think so much of the driving force to continue and to compete despite X, Y, Z comes from the athlete. And I think this is when we need the coaches to know when to step in and say, this is not, this is not the time. This is not worth your health. This is not worth your head, your ankle, your whatever it is. For me, what needs to be a priority and so important when there is an injury is that the athlete spends as much time as they would have spent skating, recovering this injury. I think so frequently uh, we get injured, we're annoyed, we get off the ice Uh, and of course dependent on the age and the level of the athlete. But if we can, if an athlete can feel like they're still doing something to work towards their skating career. I think it removes a large piece of that guilt and makes it a lot easier to accept that you can't be on the ice right now, but this is what you're doing to improve your skating by helping your whatever injury to heal and to make yourself stronger in other areas while you have the time to do that. And if we can reframe this uh, in the minds of our athletes and coaches in a lot of cases, uh, I think the panic can dissipate a little bit. So often there's panic of, I'm falling behind, I should be here, I should be doing this and that and the other thing. And in my case, that prolonged my recovery by, gosh, probably three or four times. When I got a concussion, I had had one prior and my coaches demanded I get back on the ice. <laughs> and it, it was textbook concussion. And of course, this was this was probably around 2009. So we knew a lot less about concussions back then as well. Uh, but because of this sort of rebound, I got back on the ice, I had a headache for a couple of days and then I was totally fine. I believed that with this second concussion that I had with Mike, that I would do the same thing. I would have a headache for a couple of days and it would suck. And then I would come back and be okay. And for that reason, I was not honest with my coaches. I was not honest with Mike and just kind of went on my my merry way. And so we competed at Quebec Summer Provincials two days mm-hmm. post concussion We did just a short program. It was one of the hardest things I ever did in skating. And then I was in a lot of pain. I came off the ice crying to my coaches, which was not consistent with a normal behavior of mine. And so it, it, I think, told them without me telling them that it was a little more serious than we thought. And we thought, okay, I'll take a week off. I took a week off and came back and it wasn't better. And so I waited a couple of weeks, skated a couple of weeks, went to team camp. And it was until the team camp doctor said, you can't skate. Like we're doing all these tests on you. And this is a bad concussion. You can't skate. And I think because I prolonged it, my recovery then went from what might've been a couple of weeks to, I was off the, off the ice completely for three months and not doing any elements until halfway into the fourth month. And The more knowledge we have on this being a potential scenario, if you do not take the adequate time to heal your injury, the more I think athletes will not want to take that risk to prolong their recovery time so much. I think removing the guilt piece is huge and the panic piece, which is a really hard one. But if you can feel like you're doing something to help yourself, as opposed to just sitting on the couch, watching Netflix... Uh, it's an easier pill to swallow for both uh, support team and athlete.
0: Definitely, and then you don't feel as much like that kind of pressure of, um, you know, either if you have the sense that your career is a very short window that you are losing time, or that you're losing your partner's losing time, or any of those sort of things that would be putting that extra pressure beyond your own frustration. I'm sure of wanting just to be well but that, yeah, that finding another way to frame the recovery time as not purely lost time.
1: And sometimes it can feel like worst case scenario. Like I was think I was, again, uh, listening to your conversation with May and, and she talked about how she missed the Olympic season because of her injury at Worlds. And I was there, I saw it and it was terrible. And I saw her in the dining room or the cafeteria after. And I didn't know what to say except for an F-bomb. You know, I was like, I'm sorry, I don't know what to say except for, shoot. And I thought, gosh, that is such worst case scenario for her. Like that's an Olympic year and it's gone. She's missed it. It's over. And she found a way to reframe that. And that's really hard to do. It's so hard to do. And that takes the support of so many people. That's when the support staff has to step up and help you to understand that though it feels like just worst case scenario, Right now, gosh, mm-hmm. something good has to come of this, but that's a really hard one, and and it just sucks sometimes. Like sometimes there's no other words for it except for it just sucks. And we regroup and reframe and try to find
0: another angle. And I was so impressed with how you handled your decision to not go to Worlds this past year, which I'm sure was very challenging, but for you to show that it's possible to sort of put your well being as a person ahead of what you're doing as an athlete is as such an important thing to show you know other people in the sports world that that's possible
1: thanks yeah that was a really hard one and for me personally it was easy I knew I couldn't do it but for me letting Mike down that's what was really hard and Mike really wanted to go and usually Mike and I are very aligned um, in our thoughts and decisions and uh, what we feel i think a part of that's luck and a part of that's eight years spending every day together but mike didn't understand why we wouldn't go and i just i tried to explain it to him and he kept reasoning with me and of course this is all happening very respectfully but i at the end i just had to tell him look i love you and i value your opinion and i like to think i could give you anything you asked me for and i cannot give you this and i think that's when he understood that you know, it wasn't just about going back into the rink and training. I love training. It was mm-hmm. a mental thing. And I had a really hard time last season. I think in reflection, I did last season for Mike, largely. Of course, a part of me knows I would have had some serious regrets if I stopped skating a year before the Olympics mm-hmm. because of the unknown. But it's, it's interesting in my transition. I've had quite an easy time of it so far. And I think that's because I kind of grieved my career, the loss of my career while I was in it, Uh, which seems dramatic, but you know, it's my whole life. And so uh, when it came down to it, it's hard because we as skaters work in quadrennials, right? Like you never quit a year before Olympics. You might stop two years before, do kind of half a quadrennial, but three years before nobody stops unless you're forced to because of injury. And I had a a mental injury (laughs) and that's not, uh, and not to say a concussion. I had, you know, mental health issues and um, I just couldn't do it anymore. And that was the right decision for me. And I'm so lucky that Mike is understanding and just the most fantastic partner in the world that he could understand that. And though it was hard for him. He knew.
0: Yeah. And hopefully that's something that is starting. I mean, I think we've seen a examples, I'm thinking of Simone Biles or Naomi Osaka, like people starting to put that value on mental health. And despite all of the pressures that come from being a top athlete, you know, continue to hold that importance. And I hope that, hope we see more of that and that that's, you know, there continues to be more space for it so that the next person who has to make that hard decision isn't, you know, doesn't have quite as hard of a time of it. And it's going to take people, it's going to take more people doing it for
1: more people to feel comfortable doing it. I don't know if if I didn't see Simone going through all of her stuff, if I would have been so open with mine, because it's it's hard. And it's if uh, there's a, a huge degree of shame there. You feel like you shouldn't have that as an athlete. This is my job. This is what I'm good at. This is what I'm born for. But sometimes there are other things. And Simone helped me to see that that was okay, which I'm so grateful for, though she'll never know.
0: Kirsten, thank you so much for this conversation. This has been really great to talk with you. And thank you so much for having listened to the podcast. I'm really enjoying the way that this can be kind of a cumulative or um, each of the conversations is building a little bit on the ones before. Are there other things about your experience or how we can make skating more inclusive, healthier for athletes that you want to emphasize or that we haven't brought up so far?
1: Oh gosh, I think we've touched on most everything. I think for me, the biggest thing is for superior figures in coaches' lives to acknowledge the power that they hold over their athletes and to always be vigilant with your your wording and your verbiage and how uh, you speak to your athletes because your words matter and your students want to, they just want your approval so, so much. And so I hope that we all kind of take that into consideration when dealing with our younger
0: peers and our younger athletes. I hope that your launch of your consulting goes wonderfully and that you have a great time in Japan. Thank you. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk. Thanks so much, Anna. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Kirsten Towers. You can look at the show notes for links to many of the things we discussed. Kirsten is on Instagram and Twitter at kirsten underscore MT, and her website is kmtperformance.ca. You can reach me with comments or suggestions for topics and people I should talk to by email at fsfuturepodcast at gmail.com or on Instagram and Twitter at futurefspodcast. Remember to subscribe to the Future of Figure Skating podcast on whatever platform that you use and share it with your friends.